0: Okay, so sitting in, I I believe it was Calculus 2, which says plenty right there, but it was Cal 2 at Baylor, and uh, the teacher wrote something on the board back when they actually used to write on the board, uh, wrote something on the board, and I, I think I had missed the class beforehand, and I remember sitting there looking at the problem going, I have absolutely no clue as to what is going on here. Anybody with me? Yeah, and that, it, thus ended my math career right then, right then in that moment, done, done. Uh, I, I distinctly remember sitting there going, ah, I don't, there's a lot of stuff up there, and there's very few numbers, and I don't know what to do with any of that. Um, and then uh, another time, just about 10 and a half years ago, my very first day in the office here, boxes of books packed, you know, just uh, just ready, loaded into the office. And um, I came in on a Friday, preached on Sunday, came to the office Monday morning, and I remember sitting around thinking, what do I do now? Like, what do, what do I actually do? You know, there was stuff to do. I don't have any doubt, uh, uh, And there was boxes to unpack. But I just remember thinking, what do I do? A person sitting in an office, not knowing what to do. Sounds like I don't know, 1600 Pennsylvania, or anything, I'm not sure, <laughs> a little political joke there, come on now people, just a little something for you, get you going. Um, anybody ever had those moments though, where you're facing something like, I have no idea what to do, and it can be because you're clueless, or it can be because you're overwhelmed, like I'm just ignorant, or I'm just overwhelmed with this, but I'm not sure what to do, anybody with me on that? So last week we looked at a really overwhelming moment uh, in David's life where um, he wasn't where he should have been, he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, Uh, and he wasn't uh, turning in the ways that he should have turned. And because he wasn't where he uh, he should have been and because he wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing and because he wasn't turning in the way that he should have turned, uh, he ended up in a pretty bad spot with Bathsheba. And we'll spare you all the details, uh, but you you know the story. David and Bathsheba, you know how this went down. Uh, And then he gets word back from Bathsheba, I'm pregnant. And at that point, I'm not sure if he's overwhelmed or I'm not sure what, but he makes these really unconscionable, terrible, bad moves. And I think it's because he doesn't quite know what to do. Guess what? His life is going to be uh, on display for us so that we don't make the same moves. So when you walk out of here, I don't want you feeling like you're sitting in calculus two. I don't want you feeling like uh, you're, it's the first day in the office. I want you going, hey, listen, when I fall like David did, When sin overwhelms me, when I surrender to temptation, when it comes unto my life and I make a choice that is um, contra to what God has said uh, is best for my life and best for the world and best for His glory, when I do that, at least I'll know what to do. So that's the topic of the day. What do you do uh, when you fall? So in in, uh, 2 Samuel 11, uh, just quickly, verse 1, in the spring of the year, uh, when the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah and David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house he saw from the, uh, the uh, roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Not just beautiful, very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba? Remember this is God's mercy. She has a name. She's created in the image of God. The daughter of Ilium. She has a dad. She's somebody's daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's somebody's wife and Uriah the Hittite is one of the 30, one of the most trusted members of David's uh, defense force, if you will. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her that she'd been purifying herself from her unclean, uh, uncleanness. And uh, she returned to her house and the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I'm pregnant. There's the drama point right there. What do you do when you fall? Here's what you don't do. You don't do what David did. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab. Joab's the general out on the battle lines where David should be. Send me Uriah the Hittite. You know where this is going? And Joab sent Uriah to David, and Uriah came to him, and David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war is going. He's making small talk, and then David, verse 8, said to Uriah, hey bud, you should go down to your house and uh, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. David is trying to encourage him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel, the ark of the covenant, and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, in tents, in other words. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? And David's all the while thinking, yes, that's exactly what I need you to do. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he even made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Let's pause right here. Here's some things not to do. Number one, don't cover up your sin. Don't do it. That's what David was trying to do here in doing so. Why? Why? Let's back up for just a second here. Um, Because in temptation, in temptation, this is a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, In temptation, Satan doesn't make us hate God, he just makes us forget him. That's really crucial. In other words, uh, the, uh, the overwhelming sense, the overwhelming picture that we see, if you will, in the viewfinder of our lives is this temptation. And it's not so much that we hate God in that moment. It's simply that we, we just forget him. So the temptation after you fall into sin is the exact same thing. Hey, let's just cover this up. Let's just move on. Don't cover up. Don't cover up. This is what David um, tried to do by bringing Uriah home from the front lines, going to let him go sleep with his wife, and then nobody will know any different. But here's the thing. Hiding our sin will absolutely, positively, 100% of the time, never atone for our sin, ever. Hiding our sin will never atone for our sin. That's what we see here. David was trying to cover it up, but he's never going to atone for it. So uh, just picking up the passage that we uh, uh, read as a a church family a few minutes ago. Uh, This this is Psalm 32. Listen just one more time to a couple of these verses here. Blessed is the one whose uh, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Not who covers his sin, but whose sin is covered. Do you hear the difference there? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, don't miss this, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, is what David says. It was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I think I said this last week, but right there in my Bible, I wrote, that's like August in Texas. That's what this feels like. Spiritually speaking, we're having an August in Texas kind of moment when you don't, or excuse me, when you try to cover up your sin. Why? Because hiding our sin will never, ever, 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 ever atone for your sin. If you think by, um, by hiding in some manner, like David did, if you think hiding in some manner is going to cover your sin, it won't. One of the uh, it only allows our sin to fester uh, in unhealthy ways and bring thus unhealthy effects. Uh, to us. It's like when you get a, a, a bite or when you get something on you and you, know, you scratch it and scratch it and scratch it and then what does it do? It just festers. It just gets infected. So it has to be ultimately pulled out. You, if you hide your sin, you'll never atone for your sin. One of the ways that we hide our sin um, is by saying, oh listen, it, but it's not really hurting me right now. It's not really hurting me right now. There's this phrase that we use in the South, some of you are not from the South, Uh, imports if you will, from the North, but um, uh, there's a phrase that we use in the South, and the the phrase is, bless your heart. And basically it's a covering for anything that we actually want to say that's negative about you, and we say, bless your heart, and then it just sounds really nice, actually. So you could say, golly, uh, you got your hair cut, didn't you, bless your heart, and what are you saying? Boy, that is, tell me who your person is, because I'm never going there. Uh, oh, 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 oh! look, your, your kids picked out their own clothes, bless their heart. Meaning, you know, hey, it's July and red and green don't match. You know what I mean? Like there's some that you kind of have that moment and you just use it on and on and on in all sorts of different ways. Um, the, the, it's funny when you're talking, sort of funny, when you're talking about somebody else. Uh, here's the problem, though. This is Deuteronomy, um, excuse me, chapter 29. Uh, it's verse 19. L- listen to this. Can we put that up? Deuteronomy 29, 19. Beware lest there be among you a, uh, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What kind of root is this? One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, bless my heart, isn't it? saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What does the Bible say? This will lead to a sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. What does he mean? Meaning, if I am at a place, if I am, at, this is such a good warning for us. If I'm at a place where I think covering my sin is going to uh, uh, do something for me, is going to atone, we need to hear this warning. We're blessing ourselves in our hearts saying, hey, nothing's really come bad of this. I shall be safe though I continue to walk in the stubbornness of my heart, though I continue to sin and have no intent of changing, though I continue to live this way, though I have no, this will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry life. The things that God is doing in your life and the things that the enemies at work in your life, both of those are going to get swept away. That's what he's saying. Do you hear the warning in that? Covering sin will never, ever, 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 ever atone for your sin. So don't cover it up. Don't cover it up, and don't try to uh, put it to uh, shape it in a way uh, that you say, oh, no, 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 I'm safe. It's going to be okay. It's not safe. Picking up with the story again, verse 14, chapter 11, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be, that he may struck, down, may be struck down and die. Just pause right there. Just remember, Uriah was being faithful to David even after David had been unfaithful to Uriah. And he sends him basically with his own death warrant. Verse 16. Joab was besieging the city, he assigned to Uriah the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling him all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Son of Jerubbishah. Uh, did not a, a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger came, skip down a, a little bit into verse 25. The messenger came, relayed the message, verse 25. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Cold, man. Cold. So don't don't cover your sin. Why? Because hiding our sin will never atone for our sin. And secondly, hiding our sin only multiplies our sin. It multiplies our sin. So David went from an adulterer now to a murderer. And then someone who was cold in that murder. Oh, well, the sword devours one and then another. It's okay, Joab. It's okay. Hiding our sin only multiplies our sin. In our attempts to cover up instead of confess, what we do is we end up compounding our sin and often we include others in the aftermath. Uriah, it was bad enough that uh, he was gonna have to face the things he was gonna face at home, but then he goes off to war and because David is covering up his sin, it included him and Joab and others there because it wasn't just Uriah that fell, it was others there who fell. There was loss of life because of this. Anytime we try to cover up our sin, it actually multiplies our sin in, in our attempts to cover it up, we compound our sin, and again, we often include others in the aftermath. Even the innocent parties around us get sucked into our drama, and they get affected by our story. And we can think of um, in key people in our own lives. We can think of uh, stories that we've heard where families get sucked into the whirlpool of this. We can think of companies, corporations that start going down the tubes precisely because there's this issue. We can think of countries that get sucked into this personal drama of of hiding sin. And when we hide sin, it only multiplies sin. And they get sucked into this and oftentimes swept away with it. Cover, don't, whatever you do, don't cover up because it will never atone for your sin and it only multiplies that sin. Uh, The second thing here is I just want you uh, and I, as we, um, when we come to these moments when we fall, we also, also need to deal with and recognize the consequences that come our way, the consequences that come our way. And so, uh, continuing on in chapter 12, um, these consequences, understanding these consequences, uh, in chapter 12, verse 1, and I'll just briefly tell you the story. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. Nathan is a prophet. He speaks... Uh, to David the king, one of the few people who could tell him the truth. Look what he said. Uh, There came two men. uh, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to uh, eat of his morsel, drink from his cup, uh, and uh, be held in his arms, it says. And it was like a daughter to him. And there came a traveler to the rich man. And he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. Now, if he deserves to die, and he's going to restore the lamb. How's that going to happen? I mean, David's so mad, he's just talking, right? He's just... And because he had no pity, he he did this thing and he had no pity. Look at verse 7. So Nathan said to David, hey, pal, you are the man. You're the man. Skipping down here to verse 10, Nathan unpacks that statement and it just washes over David But look at the consequences that came as part of this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. And this happened um, when there was a rebellion against David. Verse uh, 12, excuse me. For you did it secretly, but I will do do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Verse 13, And David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Sometimes our confession doesn't need to be too elaborate but it always needs to be heartfelt. It, uh, one of the commentators I read this week said, you can tell this story in four words. In the Hebrew, uh, when, when um, Bathsheba tells uh, David she's pregnant, I'm pregnant. That's two words. And then when David confesses, I've sinned against the Lord. That's two words. He says, you can tell this story in four words. I'm pregnant and I've sinned against the Lord. Sometimes it doesn't have to be an elaborate confession, but it always has to be heartfelt. Continuing on in verse 13, And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Verse 14, Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Understand the consequences of your sin. Just because God took away David's sin doesn't mean that there weren't consequences. And let me just list. Uh, a couple here, the, the, and I'll just say this, that the consequences of David's sin, um, uh, excuse me, the consequences matched the sin itself. The consequences that God imposed upon David matched the sin. Here's what he did. He met violence for violence in verse 10. Uh, now, therefore, the sword shall not depart from your house. And indeed, there was rebellion. Absalom, um, from his own house, Absalom deposed his dad for a short period of time. There was violence that was met with violence. And secondly, um, there was immorality that was met with immorality. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise, raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with uh, them in the sight of all of the sun. And so violence was met with violence. Immorality was met with immorality. And lastly, death was met with death. Verse 14, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you um, shall die. Um, we get violence for violence. I get that. Immorality with immorality. I get that. This last one, it's bugged me for two weeks now. Can I just say that out loud? Is that okay? Um, and so I worked really hard on trying to understand why this is the case. Um, he, let me just give you a couple of thoughts here on why the child died, because this is In the room, I know that some of us have experienced these kinds of things, so I want to be very tender towards this. Let me just say a couple of things here. Uh, Number one, did the child die to atone for David's sin? Listen to me, no. Mm -mm. Kids don't pay for their dad's sin um, or their mom's sin or somebody else's. Uh, everybody pays for their own sin. There's a passage in Exodus, a couple of other places in the early Old Testament, uh, where God says, I'm going to visit the sins uh, of the fathers upon sons and upon their sons. And uh, I, I think, and most people think, and I think they're right, um, that, that that is that kind of uh, passing down of what the Bible, or some people describe in the Bible as generational sin, and it's something like this. Uh, kids of alcoholics, what are they more, more prone to be than anything else? alcoholics, kids who grow up in abusive homes, guess what they're prone to do? It's not that God is saying, hey, I'm going to take this sin and inscribe it on your life. God doesn't inscribe sin upon people's lives. It's just that, hey, this is the consequence of that. But multiple times throughout the Bible, we have a passage like this. This is, again, from Deuteronomy. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. What do we see here? A child dying. Each one shall pay for their own sin. So everybody has to atone for and give an account for their own sin. So, did the child die to atone for David's sin? The answer is no, 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 no. Secondly, one of the commentators said, Can you imagine being this child growing up? It's maybe some sort of really strange uh, expression of mercy um, to this child. And I, maybe, maybe. Another commentator said this. here we have a son of David, a son of David dying. And maybe just maybe this is a picture of another son of David in the New Testament. then his name is Jesus, dying. Just a picture of that. I don't know, maybe. Here's the thing. I don't understand all the things in the Bible. I don't. <laughs> I've been at this for a long time here. I don't understand them all. What I do know is that the consequence that uh, David faced matched the sin. Uh, that David committed. It'll be true for you and me too. I'll just tell you, in the back of my Bible right here, um, this, it's good to understand. In the back of my Bible, Mike, when can y'all read that? Y'all are the ones closest to that. Uh, it says, consequences of a moral failure taped into the back of my Bible. I got pictures of my kid and wife and some prayer stuff in the front, and in the back, just a reminder, hey, listen, if you fall, pal, this is the kind of stuff that happens. It's good to remember, it's good to remind yourself that there are consequences that happen uh, when, you, when you step out of God's will, when you sin. It's good to remember that, and it's good to understand those consequences. Sometimes, uh, not only that there are consequences, but uh, understand what they could be, uh, what they could be, and what they kind of think. So here, David, the consequences match the sin. Question, was God then right to bring such harsh consequences against David? Such Yes, absolutely. He's always right in what he does. Is it right for us, this is kind of the pastoral application of that, is it right for us to be warned by such harsh consequences? What's the answer to that? Yes, yes, and yes. Yes, 100% yes. Some say that fear of consequences should not be my primary motivation in how I walk with God. Yes, yes, and amen to that, okay? Let's love God with all of our heart such that when temptation comes and it kind of takes up the, the uh, uh, full frame of our, the viewfinder of our lives, we turn around and we're like, that's not something that I love. We turn around and we look for God. Yes, yes, yes. Let's find God and let's love him with all of our hearts so that temptation is less of a thing. When it does come, though, if if the fear of consequences is the only thing to keep you on the straight and narrow, amen to that too. Amen to that. The psalmist David actually talks about this in Psalm 19. He says, keep me back from these presumptuous sins and remind me of the things that will go wrong in light of this. If fear is the only thing, if it's the only thread that keeps you tied to righteousness instead of drifting into sin, that, that fear as a motivation is better than any sin with an unwillingness to embrace any lower motive like fear. So what do you do? You, you don't cover your sin. You do understand that there are consequences or there will be consequences when you face temptation. The biggest thing I want you to do is what David said in, in verse 14. You've got to find the cure for this. You, you have to run to the only cure that is provided. Look at verse 14. Flipped one page too far. Here we go. Excuse me, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan then said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. He's put away your sin. You shall not die. Church family, listen to me. When we talk about running to the cure, after we've fallen, we've sinned against God, we've uh, faced temptation and it's gotten the better of us. we don't hide our sin because it doesn't atone for our sin. Uh, we, we do understand that there will probably be consequences that fall in light of this. But the biggest thing is, we run to the cure. And what was David? What did he do? I have sinned against the Lord. That's the best thing you can do, because there's only one cure. There's only one cure for our sin, only one cure, and what is that? That's the mercy of God over our lives. That's the only thing. I can't fix it. I can't make it right. I can't uh, somehow uh, uh, redeem this, this thing by, by trying to, oh, okay, let, let's just make this right. There may be things that I need to do to make the situation right after I experience the mercy of God. yes. Zacchaeus, I'll just point this out to you. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man, you know that. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Jesus comes walking by. I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus is like, "Uh, okay. So he goes down somewhere along the way. He has a moment where he sees Jesus for who he is. And and Jesus says this, today salvation has come to this house. Surely this one right here, he is a child of God. And what does Zacchaeus do in light of that? He says, listen, if I've stolen anything from anybody, I'm going to pay him back four times. Half of the things that I I have right now, I'm going to give away um, to the poor. There are times when restoration, when making things right is absolutely... But what comes first? The mercy of God. And so you and I, we have to run to the cure and take our cues from David here. What does he do? He simply confesses that he has sinned against the Lord. And then you see, as the rest of the story plays out, that he is committed to following the Lord. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and many others were written right in the middle of this, right in the middle of this particular episode of David's life. You see in those poems there that David expresses his heart of commitment to God. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. How will I teach? Because I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I understand the consequences of this. He is going to invest his life in this kind of thing. So, but where does, it, where does it start? It starts with the mercy of God that we would confess our sin to God and we would commit our ways to him run to the cure. There's no other way to be made right. There's no other atonement that will be given. There's only one, that we run to the cure, and that is God's mercy for you and for me. The good news is, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul lays out all of this terrible stuff. We're dead in our sins, and we follow the sworn enemy of God, and there's, and we enjoy, Uh, in, In Ephesians 2, 3, it says, we are children of wrath as the rest of mankind. And then one of my favorite phrases in the Bible is in Ephesians 2, 4. But God. God saw all of this, but God. And listen to what he says. Who is rich in mercy. And because of the great love that he has for us, he sent Jesus to die for us so that you and I could be made right with him. But God who is rich in mercy. Because some of you right now are thinking, hey man, all of the sin that I'm carrying around, he better be rich. Good news, he's rich. Hey, oh, you don't know all the struggle. Good news, he is rich in mercy. Whatever you bring to him, the only cure for your sin, for my sin, for our sin, for the nation's sin, the only cure is God's mercy. And folks, he's rich in mercy. So as we've been doing these past few weeks, I just want you to close your stuff up, put it in your lap, or put it beside you for just a moment. We'll just try to marinate in this for just a minute, and then we'll be dismissed. It's not because we don't want to have conversations afterwards, we do. It's not because we're not willing to pray, we are. But just for this season of our church family's life, we're going to pause and just be quiet before God and try to let this soak in a little bit. The only cure for our sin is God's mercy in not counting our sin against us.